Welcome to the Bethesda Church Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us today. If you'd like to contribute financially to this ministry, you can do so at BethesdaChurch.tv slash give and simply select the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, Bethesda. How are y'all this morning? Well, we had a time in the Holy Ghost at the 9 o'clock, so I know he's going to do the same at the 11. You know, uh, this is 4th of July this coming week, and, you know, we spend a lot of our time thinking about our country and the freedom that was paid for for us. But, friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that about 2,000 years ago, the God-man, Jesus Christ, was crucified And then he got up, rose from the dead to pay for your freedom. Let's give him a shout of praise for that. And he's worth way more than a day or a barbecue. He's worth your life. Um, The entirety of it, not just a day, not just a piece, not just making him part of something. He's worth it all for what he did. And you know, I've used this analogy a few times before. Just think, if you had a friend that was near to you that you walked around with every day and lived with every day and they died, and then three days later you're sitting in your living room and they walk in alive. They had died and they just walked in completely alive you would be able to talk about nothing else, be about nothing else. If somebody tried to talk to you about the weather or sports or anything later that day, you'd be like, I don't care what you have to say. My friend was dead and now he's alive. I don't care about the football game. I don't care about anything you're talking about. Let me tell you about the man who was dead and now he's alive. Why do we not treat Jesus like that? Friends, because that's real. That really happened. But we've separated ourselves from the reality of that. So why we don't treat it like that and why we spend all of our time on sports and entertainment and everything else and not on the Lord Jesus. Um, oh, good morning. <laughs> um, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know who I am, um, my name's Alex Workman. Uh, my wife, Kendallin, is the um, uh, children's director here. Um, we uh, teach the Compass class. Uh, I'm on the prayer team, and we're both currently in the ordination process through the Church of God. So I am very thankful um, and honored to speak for you guys here today and for Pastor Chad and Pastor Karen for giving me the opportunity. Um, I want to take just a moment to um, and tell you guys that uh, I think sometimes we take for granted the leaders that we have here and the stand that they take for truth, the stand that they take on the word um, in the face of opposition, not just from the world, but even from the body of Christ that they face opposition in. So I'm going to take just a moment. I know they're not in house, but they're going to watch. I'm going to take just a moment. If we could stand and honor them for the stand that they had take on that and for shepherding us well. So let's just honor them. We are blessed with the leaders we have where there are many in this day bowing the knee to culture and to the enemy, and we have a house that is not. Um, So we need to be thankful for that and realize that. 
Um, this Ephesians series so far has been awesome, absolutely awesome. Pastor Charles brought it last week, and um, PC has brought it every other week. Um, today's subject is reconciled in Christ. Um, we're going to talk about three things that God has reconciled or brought together in Christ. But what I want you to think about today, not just this message though, but like an overarching theme for all of Ephesians, is that Christ did not die just to save you from your sin, okay? That's true, but honestly, it's a byproduct of what he did. Um, we think that he just died so that we could be forgiven sinners, um, and that's just not biblically true at all. He died so that you could be a son or a daughter. That is very different from just being a sinner saved by grace. Um, we think that the biblical story is... Let me read this book so I can figure out how to go to heaven when I die one day. That's what we think this is about. And friends, I'm going to challenge you this morning that if nobody told you that that's what the Bible was about, you wouldn't get that story out of it if you read it. It's because we're taking an individual idea and putting in it that we think it means that. The message of the Bible is actually God made a perfect creation and he gave us the task of having dominion over it, of tending it, and being his image bearer in this world, being him to the world. Now, we marred that with sin, okay? We messed that up. But now God is on a mission of restoring creation, okay? And putting us back in our place as his image bearers, of doing the duty that he gave us to begin with. And because we think that we're just waiting to go to heaven someday. We think we're just going to be forgiven, so we go to heaven someday. If you don't know this, friends, heaven is temporary. You're not waiting to go there for forever, okay? The Christian message is not that I'm waiting, I'm saying a prayer, waiting till I die to go to outer space as a spirit one day. That is not the Christian message. The Christian message is you're waiting for a bodily resurrection on the earth, okay? On a new restored earth where we're going to be resurrected sons and daughters with vocations and jobs and things to do in your resurrected body. That's the ultimate goal here. Not just being floating on a cloud somewhere. God is about restoring creation. And it's important that you understand that when we're in Ephesians here because you have tasks and jobs to do and he, has, and he died for more than just to forgive you of your sin. He died to make you a son or a daughter in the house of God. That's an overarching theme to, to take from the book of Ephesians. You know, Leonard Ravenhill said, he said, one of these days, he said, somebody is going to pick up this book, read it, actually believe it, and make fools of us all. And if you actually read some of these epistles like Ephesians, the things that it says about you, the church isn't believing them. We're glazing over them and we're saying, well, I'm seated in heavenly places and I'm blessed with every blessing. But then I turn around and say how I'm not blessed and how I need all this stuff and how I need this and I'm pursuing this. When I just read over how I'm blessed with every, with every blessing, we're glazing over these truths. We say we believe the word of God, but then we're reading them and we're acting like we don't. So the thing to grab from this is when we read in here, let's actually believe what it says. Okay. Um, I'm going to have you guys actually make a promise to the person next to you here in a minute, um, but we'll, we'll wait on that. So reconciliation is the theme of this section of Ephesians. Um, and we'll just go ahead and start here with the first thing in uh, this section that we're talking about Israel and the Gentiles being reconciled and joined as one new man in Christ. Okay, so we'll just go ahead and start here in the text. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says, therefore, 
Remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So what this is talking about is that through biblical history, there was the Jews, the Israelites, that were God's chosen people, and there were the Gentiles, or these two groups of people through biblical history. And a lot of times we look at this biblically and we're like, well, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because it seems like God just kind of picked out this group of people to be chosen for them to have salvation while the rest of the world were just kind of um, wandering around um, in darkness. Um, so it doesn't quite make sense if you see it like that, okay? But what I, wanna, what I want you to see here today is that they were chosen so that they could be a blessing, okay? The Jewish people were chosen so that they could bring the Son of God into the world, not so they could have salvation while the rest of the world's walking around in darkness. It's that they were chosen to bring the Son of God into the world is why they were chosen. So I want to show you this biblically. Let's go to um, Genesis chapter 12, and we'll go to verse 2. So this is God speaking to Abraham, okay? Now, um, I think everybody in here probably understands the first point in this is that our sin separated us from God. Um, because God made the world perfect, um, we sinned, and there was a separation in that. Well, then God started a mission to restore creation. And that's where we are here with Abraham. So God's talking to Abraham, and he says here in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. He said, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, was Abraham chosen for salvation and then the rest of the world chosen for damnation? No. Abraham was chosen for service. So the Jewish people could be the means by which blessing would come to the whole earth. They were not chosen as God's chosen people to be the ones that were saved and everybody else is damned. They were chosen to be the ones by which a blessing would come to the whole world. And you can't read the book of Ephesians without dealing with words like election, um, predestined, and chosen, and things like that. So I want to, right now, um, very confrontationally, be honest with you, I'm going to deal with false, a false doctrine here that people believe. When they see words like election, predestined, chosen, okay, there is a line of thinking out there that says, well, people are predestined and are chosen to be saved, and others are chosen to be damned, okay? That is a lie of the devil, and if anybody tells you that, it is a doctrine of devils, 
Okay? It's called Calvinism, as we call it. It's a doctrine of devils. God does not choose people, God does not create people just to send them to hell. He does not create people just to damn them. He does not just choose who's going to be saved and who's going to be damned. When you see words like election, chosen, predestined in the New Testament, it means that God has chosen a corporate group of people that have faith in his son that are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. They are predestined for all those promises. Predestined just means that a destination has been determined for this corporate group of people. Just like the Jews in Israel, they were chosen, they were elect in the Old Testament. They were a corporate group of people. So when you see words like election and chosen in the New Testament, realize that you have a choice whether you're in the elect group, whether you're in the chosen group, if you choose to have faith in his son and follow him. Okay? I just want to deal with that because it's rampant um, throughout the body of Christ, that doctrine that says everything's chosen. If it's God's will, it'll happen. If it's not God's will, it won't happen. Um, everything's just predestined, and that's not biblical. We need to stop. I'll just deal with this here too. We need to stop saying things like if it's God's will, it'll happen. If it's not, it won't. We actually have a mission to we're to be about bringing heaven to the earth. We're to be about praying for things and doing things here. And things don't just happen. Curry Blake said this when he was here, and it's true. People don't like it. They're uncomfortable with it. But I think it was John Wesley that said, I don't think God can do anything in the earth unless a man prays for it. He has given us a mission to be about his work, to be his ministers here. That means when we, things won't happen if we don't do it. And people also don't like that because it puts responsibility upon us. And we can't just say, well, it's just whatever God's going to do, he's going to do. And I'm just going to sit back here on the couch. Um, that's not true. You have a mission and you have a responsibility. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit when we talk about how joined we are with God. So Jesus fulfilled this mission of the Jewish people. Okay, The mission of the Jewish people was to be a blessing to the world. And there was a seed that was going to come through Abraham. And that was fulfilled in Jesus. They were given the law, not as something that anybody had the ability to follow, but to show us what the righteousness of God looked like so that when we seen it in Jesus, we recognized it because Jesus fulfilled it. I mean, where I want to take you to show you that is Galatians chapter 3. So often we see, uh, we see the law and we think that in the Old Testament that salvation was by works in the Old Testament and now it's by faith in the New Testament. And that's not true at all. It has always been by faith. Um, even the Jews, when they had the law, it had to be by faith then because they, the they didn't have the ability to fulfill it then either. They looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. It's how they got a salvation. They looked forward to it. Abraham believed what God told him to believe at the time, and he attained salvation even by the sacrifice of Jesus, even though he didn't fully understand it because there's no other name by which man must be saved. Go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Now here it is. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of the mediator. Now jump on down here to verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a 
tutor. So the law was meant to draw us and bring us to Christ to show us that we can't fulfill that. This is the righteousness of God. In your unregenerate, unrenewed state, you can't fulfill it. So Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled this mission of the Jewish people to join everyone together that has, that has faith in him. Um, and now here's the exciting part. Okay, zoom in on this. Verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So friends, what that means is you can look into the Old Testament. Every promise made to the Jewish people, every promise made to Abraham is yours. Because if you have faith in Jesus, you are Abraham's seed. This new man that is joined together is the believing remnant of the Jews and the Gentiles that have faith in Jesus are joined together in one new man now. Um, and I want to say something about this real quick because we talk about circumcision here in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And now when the Spirit comes in us, it says in Ezekiel that you have a new heart, there'll be a new spirit put in you now um, instead of this fleshly circumcision. Well, it says in there that the reason for that is this, that you will be able to walk in my statutes, that you will be able to do my commandments when you have the new spirit inside of you and when you have a new heart. We, as the church, unfortunately, we walk around a lot of times and we're like, I'm just sin waiting to happen. Like, I can't help but sin. Like, you know, I just have this sin nature. And well, Ezekiel would tell me there that because the Spirit's in you, because you have a new heart, you actually have the ability to follow God's commandments, that you actually have the ability to do what he has told you to do. So the grace of God, people think the grace of God is, well, you can just do whatever you want. You have the grace of God now. No, the grace of God is actually the empowerment to be able to live holy. It's actually the empowerment to be able to live pure is the grace of God. Because it says when you have a new spirit, when you have a new heart, that you have the ability to follow his commandments. But we don't like that because we like the ability to say, I'm just okay always being a sinner saved by grace. When that's not what the Bible says about you. It doesn't say you're a sinner saved by grace or you're a beggar or anything like that when we walk around saying those things all the time. Um, uh, and we'll deal with that a little bit more when we talk about the union with, with us and God now. I don't want to spend too long on this joining here, because everybody has a pretty good idea of this. Israel and Gentiles are now joined into one new man. So we no longer have Israel as separate from the Gentiles. We are joined in one new man in Christ now, okay? So now I'll move on to the next one because I want to spend a good bit of time on this section that it talks about here. The next reconciliation it talks about here is God and man have been reconciled in Christ. So the first point here, as we already talked about, is sin separated us from God, okay? Everybody has a pretty good handle on that. We sinned in the garden and we were separated from God. Let's read in the text here in Ephesians, uh, verse 18. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So when sin 
separated us from union with God. We have this idea, unfortunately, all the times that we're ha- we need to climb this ladder to get up to God. And if you don't know that, it's actually it's very pagan because every other religion thinks that way. They think that we're trying to get up to him. The biblical story, friends, is actually he wants to dwell with you, okay? He wants to dwell with you on the earth, not that you're trying to go somewhere to be with him. If you look at Genesis, God walked with Adam in the garden, right? Well, then when he left, what happened in Exodus? Overarched the theme to Exodus chapter 40, God came and dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant, right? He's wanting to come dwell with us. The last scene in the Bible also, my friends, is this. Revelation chapter 20 is the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Where? Here. We are, our hope is not being a spirit in heaven forever. It's a resurrected body on the earth. And that means something for us. It means when you get saved, you're not getting a ticket punch to go somewhere when you die one day. It means you're getting a ticket punch to be a participant in bringing the kingdom of heaven to the earth. And if you're not a participant, then you're actually not a Christian. Um, I'm just going to be very straight with you. If you're not a participant in bringing the kingdom of heaven to the earth, it's like getting a job and saying, yeah, I'm not going to do anything the job requires. I just want the benefits of this. Um, I just want to get married because my wife has a retirement home in the Bahamas and I want the Bahamas one day. I'll just muddle through this relationship with her. I'll grit my teeth and do all these things all these years because I kind of want the retirement home. Um, I really don't love her. Um, I just want the retirement home one day. And we treat the Lord like that. I'm trying to get heaven, but I don't really care what my job is. Um, I don't really care what I'm supposed to do when I'm here. Um, I just want the benefits of this. Um, Because salvation's by grace, 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 grace. But we're getting a ticket punch to be a participant, friends, not to go somewhere when we die one day. Um, And the analogy is the same. It would be like marrying my wife for her retirement home. Now, sin separated us, but then Jesus, okay? Now, I want us all to agree on something here real quick, okay? Does everybody in this room agree that this is truth who agrees with that this is truth so do you agree with me that if I show you something written in here no matter how we feel about it do you agree that it's true who agrees with that no matter how we feel about it that if we read it in here it is truth look at the person next to you and say I'm going to hold you to that all right Because we're about to read some things that religion has told you, whoa, you're going too far. I know it says that, but it doesn't mean that. If you read the Bible for what it plainly says, that's what it plainly means. We're going to read some of those things, okay? So I want you to remember that you agreed that this is truth and that you agreed that no matter how we feel about it, that it's still true and that now you're accountable to the person next to you that you're going to do it because you just told them that, okay? So let's look at Jesus here. Jesus lived in complete union with God, and I'm going to show you this biblically, okay? So let's go to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. Sorry for my Bible flipping. I'm kind of old-fashioned. I've got to have my Bible up here. I'm 32 going on 80. <laughs> my wife just said Amen. 
So Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So we have the biblical truth here that in Jesus dwelt all the Godhead bodily on the earth in Jesus. Are we on the same page there? Does everybody agree with that? Amen? Okay. Now let's look at some words of Jesus while he was on the earth and what he said about his desire for us. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, before we even read it, this is way different than what you're being told from most pulpits, to be honest with you. These are Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and we'll go to verse 20. Um, most people call um, the other prayer that Jesus did the Lord's Prayer, but John chapter 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer. The other one is the disciples' prayer, okay? He told us to pray that. John chapter 17 is Jesus praying to the Father. This is the Lord's Prayer. So I think we should really tune our ear in if Jesus is talking to God to see the things that he's saying. So uh, in verse 20 here, he says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. I want you to say, who is that? That's you. You're the one that will believe through their word. So that's you. That they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory that you gave me, I give them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, and that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you have loved them. Now, friends, we're walking around saying things like, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and I'm a beggar, and I can't be like Jesus. I can't do that. Well, these are Jesus' words clearly saying, I want them to have the same union with you, Father, that I have the exact same access, the exact same union, I am desiring that for them. So when we say things like, well, I can't be like Jesus, I can't do those things, it's actually disobedience, and we're saying, we're calling him a liar because he said we could. And it's actually disobedient if we're saying things like that. Because he said, this is his words, I want them to have the same union that we have, the same access that I have with you, I am desiring for them. Those are his words. Now remember, we all agreed a moment ago that if this is in the word, it's true. And that we're gonna believe it no matter how we feel about it. It doesn't matter to, it doesn't matter to the Lord how you feel about this. That doesn't matter. It matters that it's truth because it's in the word of God. That's why it matters. Now, we have Jesus saying these words. Now let's see where the word of God says that you can be filled with the fullness of God. Because the next point here is his death and ascension gave us his access to the Father. So the same access that he had 
is the same access now that we have. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 19. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, and that, who, who? You may be filled with how much? All the fullness of God. That doesn't say a portion, doesn't say part. It says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what I just walked you through here biblically is that Jesus was completely full of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We have Jesus' words saying, I, Father, I desire for them to be in complete union with you, just like I am with you. Well, then we have Paul here saying that you are going to be filled with all, not a portion, not a part, but all the fullness of God. Now, I'm not going to go there for sake of time, but in John 14, Jesus said, you will do these works that I do and greater. And again, we're walking around saying that I can't do that. I can't be that. Those are the words of Jesus, friend. They're not, the word, they're not my words. He said, you'll do these things and greater because I go to the Father. When he, went, when he sent the Spirit, when he went to the Father, the point of sending the Spirit was to make Jesus clones. That we are walking around being Jesus everywhere we go. That I walk in Walmart and I grab someone on a wheelchair and pull them up out of the wheelchair. That's the point of this. So that we are Jesus clones walking around everywhere we go. That's why it's better that he went away. So he sent his spirit. So his spirit indwells us. John G. Lake said something about modern Pentecost that I think is really true. And it's in it, it, honestly, it becomes an indictment on all of us. Um, John Lake said modern Pentecost, which um, he means the outpouring that happened at Azusa Street that then poured out to the modern Pentecostal church, he said has failed about 90%. He said because we, as the Pentecostal church, became enamored with the gifts. We forgot the giver. We became enamored with having good church services. We became enamored with getting goosebumps and falling on the floor and speaking in tongues and having good services that we say glory to God and then we walk out of the building and walk, and walk by the same gas station clerk that's never heard about Jesus. We walk by them our whole life, never preached to them. But, but glory to God, we just had a good church service. I fell on the floor and spoke in tongues. Now, there's an indictment to the other side too because honestly what happens is people that don't even believe in the empowerment of the filling of the Spirit They'll be, they'll be out there witnessing, but they have no power, okay? So we have a group sitting over here who is out witnessing, but they don't believe in the manifestation of the Spirit that we're, that we're supposed to do, but they're out witnessing. And then we have a group here that believes in power, but we're not doing anything. We got to come to the middle of that and say, we got a job to do, and we're going to do it in the power of the Spirit. You know the reason that you're filled with the Holy Ghost? You know why? To be a witness. That's why. That's what Acts says. You're filled with the Holy Ghost to be a witness. And we have people that are sitting in church saying, well, I don't need that Holy Ghost. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. I got my ticket punched. I'm okay. Um, I doubt that you are okay if you think that way. I doubt that you know him if you think that way. 
Because if his spirit is actually in you, you will have a burden for the lost. And if his spirit is actually in you too, he'll show you that you can't do this on your own and you need the empowerment of the spirit and you are supposed to be walking around as Jesus and not just a saved sinner. Because if you're walking around as a saved sinner, this is just Judaism 2.0. What's the difference? What's the difference in how it was under the law if we have no empowerment to do anything different under the spirit? If we're not to be any different, this is just Judaism. It's, It's the same thing. It's no different. But we are, set, we, make, we are setting on pews for 50 years, and I witnessed to three people in my entire life because I said a prayer when I was 12. I'm on my way to heaven, and my, and my life looks no different at all from the world. I watch the same shows. I do the same things. Most of my time and attention ends up getting spent on football and entertainment and everything else besides the things of God. We call ourselves Christians, and we look nothing like this book. Friends, what are we basing our life on? We're basing it off what we see in church tradition and what we see in our churches and not what's in this book. Because in this book right here, this book right here, what you guys call radical, what you call radical of walking in Walmart and praying for people as I'm grocery shopping and then preaching on the street, and what what you call radical is just normal Christianity in that book. I see people that are willing right now to just go die everywhere. Um, I'll tell you guys this story. I'm... uh, I told it at JGLM when I was there. There was a church father. His name was Polycarp. I've got a little bit more time in the 11th service. His name was Polycarp. He was a disciple of John. You can read this in the Antinicene Fathers if you want to read it. It was normal back then that the Romans just came around and killed Christians and murdered them. That was just normal Christianity that when you made a proclamation to follow Christ, you were ready to die for it tomorrow. It was normal. Um, the Romans found Polycarp. Um, uh, they drug him before the Roman proconsul. Um, he's standing before the Roman proconsul, and this man's 86 years old. And they told him, that we're going we're gonna to release animals on you and kill you if you don't denounce Christ. Well, he said, for 86 years I've served him. He's never done me any wrong. I will not blaspheme my Lord and King. Well, then they told him, said, we're going to burn you alive. We're going to burn you. He looked at him straight in the face and said, the fire that you speak of will extinguish within the hour. But there is a fire of eternal judgment that you know nothing about. Do whatever you want to do. Friends, that was normal Christianity. Normal. That you're willing to die right now for this. And what we call normal Christianity right now is sitting on a pew for 50 years doing nothing. We take in lessons every week. We're constantly taking in lessons and taking in lessons and taking in lessons. And we walk by the same gas station attendant for our entire life and never witness to them. And they're right down the road from our house. That we have family members who are sick. And we don't pray for them. I have a coworker who is just demonized with anxiety. And I don't stop and say, I can set you free from that because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead's in me. Do you want some freedom? No, we just sat there. Friends, this is an indictment to us. We are to be about his business, and this is not about you going to heaven one day when you die. That's a byproduct of what he did. What he did was he sent his spirit to be in you for you to be a manifested son or daughter of God and be about his business. That's what this is for. But we think it's so we can go to heaven one day and get goosebumps and have a good time.
in Philippians chapter 2, I'm not going to go there, um, it talks about how Christ emptied himself. Emptied himself of his divine attributes when he became a man. Okay? Do not mishear me in what I'm about to say because religion will tell you to mishear me. Okay? Hear exactly what I say. It says Christ emptied himself of his divine attributes when he became a man. It means everything he did on the earth as Jesus Christ, he wasn't doing it in the power of God, in the power of the second member of the Trinity. Everything he did was what a man filled with the Holy Ghost in right relationship with God can do. That's what the emptying of his divine attributes was for. Because if he was walking around the earth as the second member of the Trinity, now don't mishear me, okay? Clearly, he was fully God. He was fully man. He never lost that. He decided to empty himself of his divine attributes. If he did not, why did he need to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Why did the Holy Ghost need to come upon him? He could have just done everything as a second member of the Trinity. But no, he emptied himself of that to be a man, to be filled with a spirit to show us everything that I'm doing is what a man in right relationship with God, filled with the spirit of God, is to be doing. So the true message of what Jesus was is not this is what God looks like. It's that this is what a true human is supposed to look like. Jesus fulfilled what Adam was supposed to do. It's like this is actually what a true human is supposed to be and supposed to do, bearing God's image into the world. This is what a true human is supposed to be. I'll give you an example. How did he fight the devil? When he was tempted in the wilderness, how did Jesus fight the devil? What he could have done if he was operating as just the second member of the Trinity, he could have just said, get lost, and he would have had to listen. But how did he fight him? He said, it is written. So he fought him the same way to fight him with the word of God. He didn't operate in his power as a second member of the Trinity. He operated in the power as a man filled with the spirit of God and right relationship with God. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is what a true human's supposed to be. Now, we don't like that because we don't like the responsibility that puts on us. We want the bar to be here. We don't want the bar to be Jesus. We want the bar to be here so we're comfortable. We're comfortable and that cool stuff happens every now and then and we can rejoice in it like down here. That's what we want. We don't want the bar to be here to Jesus because we got something to measure up into. That's what Ephesians chapter 4, I don't want to preach on here in Ephesians, but talks about us growing up into his fullness. And that's our job. And the job of the fivefold ministry is to grow you up into him so that you look like him. So that when Jesus said things like, you'll do greater things, there's supposed to be a whole bunch of us, Jesus. This is why. Because everybody in this room is supposed to be in your daily life, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and setting captives free. There shouldn't be any oppressed people in your workplace because you should set them all free. There shouldn't be any sick people in your family because you should heal them. Um, that is your job in your place, your workplace, your family, where you go. That's all of our jobs. We're supposed to be little Jesuses walking around this world setting the captive free. How long would it take us to turn this world upside down for the Lord if we all just decided one person today, I'm going to win one person for the Lord. I'm going to set one person free. But no, we're too concerned with football. Um, we're too concerned with watching our favorite TV show. Um, we're too concerned with everything else except for saving somebody from eternal damnation. Um, we're too concerned with everything else that doesn't matter. Um, if all of us decided one person... How long would it take to win this entire county, this entire state, if you won one person?
to the Lord every day. And don't you tell me you can't find them either. Don't tell me you can't. You guys are quiet. Really quiet. Um, that's to be our mission. That's what we're to be about. We don't like it because it requires something of us. Is why we don't like that. We'll move on to the third, uh, the third section here of what God has reconciled. He has also reconciled believers together in this. I'll read the text in Ephesians. Back to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll go to verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. The first point here is that we are individually and collectively temples of the Holy Ghost. Okay? It's a biblical truth that you are individually a temple of the Holy Spirit, but there is an aspect of that that is not complete if you are not a member of the body who is a temple of the Holy Ghost. Um, the devil loves to create disunity. He loves to create offense. He loves to make you mad at your fellow believers. He loves for you to sit in unforgiveness for somebody in church. He loves for all those things. Unity is extremely, extremely, extremely important to the Lord. Um, we're going to look at um, we're going to look pretty deep into this because in Acts chapter 2, it says they were one mind and of one accord. And there's aspects of this mission we have we're not going to fulfill until we get of one mind and one accord and get in unity. Because if you walk around just looking to be offended, you're going to find something to be offended about. And so many of us within the body, we walk around all day just waiting till I can be offended. Who can say the wrong word to me? Who can put the, my water in the wrong place? Who can, and I, so I can be offended. Who can say the wrong thing so I can be offended? The devil loves that and he is wrecking havoc on us. And then what we do, maybe we're the victim of that offense and then we set in unforgiveness because of that happening. And friends, I'm here to tell you, it's biblical. Jesus said, if you don't forgive, you're not forgiven. We don't like to talk about that. He directly said it. If you do not forgive, you are not forgiven. So forgiveness is not an option for believers. We don't have an option to not forgive. We're commanded to. And your eternal destiny is actually dependent upon it. Um, that you forgive what happens. And if you look at almost any mighty move of God, from Azusa Street to the Welsh Revival to Brownsville, anything else, what ends up happening is it goes really, 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 really well, and then division comes in, and the devil splits it apart. God is moving here. As Pastor Chad said, revival is not coming, it's here. 
Revival is here. You're in the midst of it. And that means the enemy is going to be working double time to create division and to divide us apart and to create a fence and divide us apart. It is normative in the body now that the preacher says something wrong or somebody says something wrong. I am leaving the church. Um, I don't, I'm gone. Um, I'm coming here to get a service. This is McDonald's. Just like McDonald's, I come to get a service. And if I don't get it exactly how I want it, then I'm just leaving. That's how we treat it. That's how we treat church. That's not what this is supposed to be, friends. You are not supposed to come in here, get served, and then leave. You are supposed to come in here to be equipped to be a blessing and serve. The job of the fivefold ministry is to equip you to serve, to equip you to be a minister of the gospel, to equip you to be about doing the work of God. Not for you to come in here, consume a lesson, go about your week, consume a lesson, go about your week, consume a lesson. That ain't what this is about. It's about you being equipped to be about the ministry. And until we understand that, there's aspects of this we're not going to get right. You've got to understand that you're to be about the business. When I give you this lesson, you're supposed to take it and then do it. Not just, man, praise God, good lesson. That was cool. Good lesson. All right, let's go to lunch. <laughs> that ain't what this is about. This is about you taking that and in your week, you're doing the Bible. We read it a lot, but we don't do it. We read it all day long. We're like, yeah, it's cool. Jesus was cool. Yeah, it was cool stuff he did. Paul, cool, awesome. When you read the epistles, you're like, ooh, I'm supposed to do this. Ooh, I don't know about that. Um, that's the biblical message. You're supposed to be about all this stuff. You're supposed to be doing it. Um, I won't go to the scripture, but Ephesians 4.3 tells us that we must be eager to maintain unity even in the presence of conflict. So that means when somebody comes to me and division's about to happen, my posture should not be, oh, did you hear this? Did you hear that? It should be, I need to be eager to maintain unity. Eager. Eager to maintain unity. Not eager to gossip. Not eager to then spread this disunity. Not eager to be mad about what was just told me. It's eager. How can I maintain unity with what just happened? How can I reconcile with my brother? How can we maintain this unity? Not, did you hear what the preacher said today? Did you hear that? If you have a problem with what the preacher said, why don't you go to the preacher? Instead of going to everybody around you talking about what he said, why don't you go to him and reconcile it with him instead of spreading division and being Satan's messenger within the church? Because that's what he does. How do we maintain unity? Now, let me, let me say this real quick before we go there. If something like that happens... Church hurt, something like that. Um, and I'm not, somebody here may have experienced that, and it may be for a justified region, okay? Something bad could have been done to you, okay? But what I have seen numerous, numerous, numerous times, I've been in church my whole life, is that something happens, and then somebody says, well, I'm going to go away to fast and pray about this, um, and you're going to separate yourself from the body. Well, the, the devil loves isolated lambs, and you, he wrecks havoc on them. And a lot of times those people end up never coming back anywhere as they go away to fast and pray and figure this out. Um, it's okay for you to fast and pray, but do it within the body, okay? Reconcile what's going on within the body. Don't separate yourself to try to figure it out. That doesn't work. 
It doesn't work like that. And a lot of times you actually see people end up in like weird doctrines like that. People end up going into new age and all kinds of weird stuff because they separate themselves from the body and they're, I'm going to fast and pray and figure some stuff out. And they end up in weird, weird, weird places because the body's important. We all have a function. Did you know you, right where you're sitting, the Holy Ghost has empowered you with a gift to be used within the body. Every one of you, every one of you has a gift to be used within this body, all of you. And if you're just sitting here on this pew consuming, you're never functioning in it. And I'm gonna be honest with you, it's why a lot of us end up falling away in sin because we're not about the business we're supposed to be doing, we get bored and we fall away to what's in front of us because we're not about what we're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be so busy doing the do's, you don't wanna do the don'ts. But we end up bored because we're not doing the do's. We're not actually being about the business. So then we get bored. Like Christianity is boring. If you're doing it right, no, it ain't. It's not boring at all. If you're out here casting devils out of people normatively and healing the sick, that's not boring at all. I'm telling you, it is not boring. It's not boring when a demon manifests in, the, in your living room floor, in your living room. Uh, that's not boring. It happened to us. First time we ever dealt with one. Someone contorted and manifested in our living room floor. Um, that's not boring. It's not a boring life. Um, I went to work, told people about it, and they thought it was crazy. <laughs> not boring. How do we maintain this unity? Point number one is we do Matthew 18 when offense happens. This is one of those truths that we glaze over in the word of God. We're like, yeah, that's cool. But we never do it. Because it's difficult. Because we have to confront people. Um, and I'm just going to tell you, if you like hiding in the shadows and gossiping, you're just like the devil. That's what he likes to do. You know what Jesus does? Jesus confronts. Jesus confronts. The devil likes to hide in the shadows and not talk about it and go tell everybody else and spread division. And that's what we do. We don't confront. So let's go, uh, let's go to Matthew 18 and see what it says. We'll go to verse 15. Now, I'm going to call you guys to this too, okay? You guys agree this is truth, right? This is truth? And if it's written in here, we need to do it, right? So before I go through this, can we agree with each other that if offense happens, we are going to do this and nothing else because this is what's written, that we're going to do this? Who will agree with me that when offense happens, that you will do Matthew 18, that we will do this? This is what we're going to do if offense within our body happens, this is what we'll do. If you don't agree with that, you're in sin, but that's on you. So Matthew 18, verse 15 says this. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell um, your friend, your brother, your mother, um, some acquaintance you met on the street. Is that what it says? Go and tell him. His fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Notice the win is not that you're right. Notice the win is reconciliation. Notice the win is that you gain your brother. That's the win. Not that you're right. And you go to them alone and confront them with whatever your offense is. Now, what's step number two? 16 says, 
But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. I'm going to ask you right now, I want you to examine yourself. Would you be okay? You couldn't reconcile between you and your brother. They brought two witnesses to you to try to reconcile this. Would you be okay with that? If you're not, you're not okay with the Bible. And it's why we have so many problems with division and things that don't get sorted out because we're not doing this. And then me as a believer, I can't be mad at those two that came to me with him. I can't be mad at them because they're doing the Bible. They're coming to me to try to sort out this difference that we're having. So I can't be mad at those, that group of people. What's the next step? It doesn't get sorted out that way. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Friends, are you okay if your church leadership calls you about a division you have with a believer? You okay with them having that kind of oversight in your life? If you're not, you're not okay with the Bible. Church leadership is put in place for us to be in a local body and then to have authority over us. That's a biblical truth. And you see it right here. That you have the church having authority over a disagreement within the body. We think this is all about us consuming something. God has placed you within a body. You think you choose where you go to church. Nope. God chooses where you go to church. He chooses that. It's, it's actually, we were talking about this yesterday. If you do this Christian life right, it's the most free you'll ever be. I don't make my own decisions. He makes them. I don't have my own will. He makes it. He does it. I don't have a say-so in the matter. I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus. That is so freeing because I'm not worried about making the wrong decision because he just makes it. He just does it for me. I just listen to what he says. I just say, yes, sir, all the time. It's so freeing to actually do that. We're not living that way because we want to retain us. I want to make my own decisions too, and I don't want to be a bondservant to Jesus like that. We think that's extra. We think that's extraordinary when we see someone live like that. When you're like, whoa, you're going to Africa? Well, yeah, Jesus just told me to. Like, so I'm just doing it. That's, I'm just doing that. We think that's extraordinary when this is how we're all supposed to live. And you wouldn't be in so much anxiety and confusion and everything that you live in if you just let go of your will and you just let him manifest and live through you. There's the most freedom that you'll ever live in. And you won't deal with a lot of the problems that you deal with when you're trying to hold on to you. The next point is we forgive easily because you've been forgiven. I don't know about you, but I've done some horrendous things that the Lord, I cried out to him for forgiveness and he just forgave me. But with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we want to hold it over their head. We want to say, well, you need to kind of sit in this one for a little bit. Did Jesus do that with us? No, he did not. He just forgave us. But we sit in unforgiveness and it becomes demonic is what it becomes if you sit in that deep unforgiveness. And we want our brothers and sisters to suffer because we're like, yeah, just asking forgiveness isn't enough. I've got a higher standard than what God does. Because asking for forgiveness isn't enough. The next point is you gather often with other believers. Often. We run a home group in our home. Um, uh, and it's something that we've found 
um, that if you only come to this corporate gathering on Sunday, you are not practicing New, New Testament Christianity. You're not. It's easy here in this gathering to fall back into the shadows. The people don't know things about your life. It's easy. You fall back in. You just kind of blend in. Nobody's too close. Nobody sees. I'm going to blend into the crowd. I'm okay. We don't like being in an intimate group because if I show up in an intimate group and something's wrong, they know. Like, hey, man, you okay? Like, you okay today? We've seen people get free um, like nowhere else in that intimate group because you have people that were really concerned about them and people opened up about things and people got free in that small group. And this is, I'm just going to be very direct with you guys. The, the small group attendance in this church is awful, absolutely awful. If you were only coming to this Sunday gathering and you're not in a small group, you're not practicing New Testament Christianity. You're not. You can't do this alone. I can't, you can't, nobody can. Jesus wasn't alone. He had a group of people around him. You can't do it alone. You need an intimate, small group of believers that you are very intimate with, that you are living life with, and you're accountable to each other. We don't want accountability. I want to be my own ruler. I want people around me that's like, hey, man, I think you're messing up there. Let's talk. I want those people around me. You should too. And if you don't, you're slipping up. Our small groups should be filled with the membership that we have in this church. Filled. But what we like to do is call the pastor when we have problems in our life but not be in that small group that will probably fix it. We want to call with all the problems that we have, but we won't submit to the intimacy of that group so we get cleaned up because we don't want to be exposed to anybody. But that will clean you up, being exposed, and you'll find freedom in that. And I'm going to say it again because you are not practicing New Testament Christianity if you are not in a small, intimate group of believers. You're not. If you study the New Testament, they had house churches they had numerous small gatherings within the city that they met together intimately and they lived life with each other. It's how people were actually discipled. They didn't blend into a whole mass gathering like this. I knew how you were living. And us as brothers in Christ, if I knew you were off, I'd come to you and tell you. We got to learn to be okay with that. I got to learn to be okay with my brother in Christ saying, man, I think you probably shouldn't be doing that. I think you're slipping up. Um, and when we get into an argument with our spouse, instead of having friends that say things like, well, I mean, man, you just take off. We have friends that say, how can we reconcile you guys? How can we fix this? We have friends around us like that. You can't do this alone. I can't either. If I could get the worship team to start making their way up here. The Lord showed me a couple of different things that us as a, as a house that we need to deal with today. Um, if everybody would stand with me. I'm going to speak first to 
people that don't know the Lord at all. I'm going to speak to believers. I'm going to speak first to those that don't know the Lord at all. If compass directors could get into place. If you have heard this talk today about union with God and knowing the Lord, and that is a foreign concept to you, I doubt that you know him. I'm going to say the same thing today as I said the first time I preached here because it's so good. And this is, a, this is from Steve Hill, one of the evangelists of the um, Brownsville Revival. I want you to examine yourself when I say this. He said, if you don't live, sleep, eat, and breathe Jesus, I doubt that you know him. He said, if you don't go to bed thinking about him and wake up thinking about him, I doubt that you know him. You can go to hell with a communion element in your mouth and baptism of waters on your face if you don't know him. We think being saved, I don't even like to ask people if they're saved anymore. Everybody's saved. Does the spirit of Christ live in you? Does he reside in you? Do you have a relationship with him like a person? Do you talk to him? Does he talk to you? Do you commune with him in your prayer closet every day? Do you look forward to the part of your day where you get to talk to him? The maker of the universe that has made himself accessible to us. Do you, are you drawn to that? Do you yearn for it? Do you have a healthy addiction to his presence? Do you yearn for your Bible? Do the words leap off the page? We're like, this is food for me. If that's not true, I doubt you know him. The word says, make your election and your calling sure. Sure. There will be a day, friends, that what I'm telling you right now is going to matter because we're all going to stand before him. And everything that you're spending your life on right now ain't going to matter one bit. The football game's not going to matter. The show you're watching on TV is not going to matter. Your job is not going to matter. If you were in union with him is what's going to matter. If you knew him is the only thing that's going to matter. That's it. I'm very upfront with you today because I'm going to be standing on judgment day looking at you. I'm not going to stand there and say, I didn't tell him. That's why I'm being very confrontational with you today. This is the most important thing you will ever hear, ever. And the word says, make it sure. So I am not asking you this morning if you said a prayer 10 years ago. I'm asking you, do you know him? Does this abiding intimate relationship I'm talking about, if these are foreign words to you, I doubt you know him. And he wants to know you. He doesn't want to just save you from your sins. He wants to draw you in and set you completely free. So anxiety's not a thing. Depression's not a thing. That none of those are a thing in him. He wants to give you life. He doesn't want to give you an abundant life. He wants to give you life in abundance. Those are different things. That's what he wants to give you. So I'm not asking you if you said a prayer 10 years ago. I'm not asking you if you grew up in church. I'm not asking you, you may have been in church for 20 years. I was in church for a long time. I knew about him, but I didn't know him. 
These are different things. If you don't have that draw to him, if you're not pulled to that union with him, to where your prayer closet's your favorite place, the word's your favorite thing to read, let's make that right today. Let's get that set with him today. Eyes up, heads up. He said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. If this is foreign language to you today, maybe I said a prayer, but I, I don't have that. Let's raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Keep it up so the compass direction. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Friends, I'm not going to call you up here right where you're at. I'm not going to lead you through a prayer. I'm going to tell you what to do right where you're at. You're going to use your own words right now with God. And you're going to tell him, I want that union. I ask you to forgive me for how I have been living. And I want to live in complete union with you. I give you everything. I repent of how I have lived and I give it all to you. Tell him that in your own words. You do that, you're born again. You have this union that I'm talking about. Completely new, completely recreated. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Bethesda Church. We hope you'll stay connected by following us online. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our website, BethesdaChurch.tv. Thank you for joining us and have a great day.